Hello and welcome to Stranger Stopping Strangers, podcast number 71. A big welcome back to anyone who's returning. Thanks for stopping in to anybody who's new this week. Well, in this week's episode, I had the honor and privilege to talk to deadhead Anthony Serpico. Anthony and I connected a while back uh, through posts on Instagram. And you know, although the podcast is only made, you know, once a month now and twice a month before, on a day-to-day basis, I really try and keep the uh, Stranger Stopping Strangers vibes freshly updated with a post. So many of the deadheads that I connect with, you know, I tell later about the podcast. So Anthony, he slid into my DMs, which is a term I just learned recently. We started chatting and I asked if he would please share some of his stories on the podcast. And he was all in, super excited about it. But then it took almost a year to we were able to really coordinate our schedules and get it together. And oh my goodness, in my opinion, I think it was well worth the wait. So Anthony started to go see The Grateful Dead in 1972 in the overall New York area. He covered a lot of ground and saw just some amazing musical history. Probably one of the most ultimate shows, Watkins Glen, July 1973. So we talked quite a bit about that, just some of the other magic he was able to see in his life. And you know, even with all those years of being a deadhead, seeing some of the greatest shows of all time, to say the other thing that was so cool about Anthony is that he's just so incredibly enthusiastic about today's music scene, and especially his experiences in the Dead and Company shows in admiration for the other bands. I mean, we started talking about it at the beginning of the podcast, and he was so excited about the Cumberland Blues from last November that it was just to be played as the first song. And I mean, really, when you think about all of the songs that he has heard, and I mean, probably a pick out of thousands. I mean, just so enthusiastic, so much fun to talk to. And Anthony is a man that is so cool that he is cool with capital K really integral part of our deadhead community and in my opinion one of the reasons that the music never stops so so much fun you know while these podcasts are now down to once a month i think my intros will be probably a little bit longer do want to say you know for anybody who is listening to this on itunes and done you got a minute you know go ahead and uh leave a little review or check a rating i've been scrolling back to the itunes page and reading some and uh, it's really fantastic and it means a lot so have a minute please go and do a rating and uh whatever you got to say on the reviews on the uh, itunes and then the last thing i want to mention is uh, my friends over at osiris podcast if anyone's looking for some really fun podcasts to listen to in the month, come check out the podcast over at Osiris Podcast Network. There are fish podcasts, dead podcasts, just all kinds of different music and culture, and they all connect music fans with conversation, and commentary, and always a ton of really great music. So you can find the other podcasts that are part of Osiris Podcast at osirispod.com. That's O-S-I-R-I-S. I hope everybody enjoys listening as much as we enjoyed making this podcast, and I will catch you next month. Bye. Well, Anthony Serpico, welcome to Stranger Stopping Strangers. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I'm so excited. I mean, we have been, you've been kind of in the, in, in the queue of getting together and talking for, I want to say it's been a year, and then we kind of lost touch for a while and then just popped up and the timing was just perfect. 
Uh, yes, absolutely. And I'm glad that um, we were able to uh, finally get back together. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Oh, I am too. I mean, you know, anyone who's listening, I know the podcast is really, it's the stories from the community. And, you know, my last episode was, was the young women in the community. And it was so much fun getting to hear their stories. And it's so, like, it's so important to me to be able to share this, you know, this, these wide, vast experiences because the dead community make up, I mean, it was such a tremendous group of people from, you know, from teenagers to, to 90 year olds, to people who saw 300 shows, to people who have never seen a show. And I mean, you have such a rich, rich experience of shows. And I mean, it's amazing. I mean, this, this podcast could be fucking five hours, right? Oh, I don't have it for five hours. I'm sorry. But um, I've been to, uh, you know, 280 some odd shows since 1971. Yes. Wow. Well, and you're from the East Coast, so the majority of your, like, you, when you were younger, tooling around, these were these were north Northeast shows for the most part. Um, I would go every night when they were in Long Island, New York, or Connecticut. I would try to go every night. Tickets were 10 or $12, and that's how I saw so many concerts. I didn't, I wasn't one of those get on the uh, Volkswagen flower van and drive to Utah. I wasn't one of those kind of deadheads. I was a local deadhead. I did go to Watkins Glen, though, the epic of all concerts of all time. <laughs> well, and that one, I, I mean, gosh, I want to hear, you've told me a little bit, I want to hear full stories about that one. But, you know, again, our conversation can be so vast, and there's so much that, you know, when we talked a few minutes before this, we kind of honed it in a little bit, because this, again, could be, there's so much, so much experience. Let's talk a little bit about your first show, because that just sounds phenomenal, and you had a music pick from that. So tell me about, like, first listening, your first album, like, how did you discover the music, and... Well, you know, I started listening to rock and roll at around age 14, and um, my first album was probably Grand Funk Railroad. They were a popular American band, and um, a friend of mine said, you know, you should you should try listening to The Grateful Dead. And I go, who are The Grateful Dead? And he goes, just buy the album Working Man's Dead. And I did. And um, I felt magic right away. So I got myself a ticket to the Academy of Music. It was uh, I, I thought it was in 71. It might have been 72. And uh, it was the Academy of Music in um, New York City. I believe it was on West 14th Street. And um, the opening act was uh, Stevie Winwood in Traffic, which happened to be an hour and a half of a guy that can play every instrument, Stevie Winwood. He was excellent. He's he was amazing. on stage with Jim Baldy and Ron, you know, the flute player. They were, they were great. And that was exciting. And um, I had only been to two or three concerts prior to that. And then the Grateful Dead come on and the whole energy of the audience changes. It just changes. The energy is explosive. Even back then, it was explosive. And I don't remember what they opened up with, but I do remember what they closed the first set with. And it was, you know, Casey Jones. Now, me being a new deadhead, Casey Jones was a song that I really liked because of what it was about. You know, driving that train, blah, blah, blah. And it was just incredible the way they played it. They played the whole song, and at the end of the song, when they start to repeat themselves, driving that train, high on cocaine, they put the mirror light on, which was popular back then. It's not anymore. It was more, Then it became a disco light. And for like a half an hour, 
they just keep getting louder and faster, saying, driving that train, uh, and uh, Gracie Jones, and it just kept going and going and going. And the crowd was just like, well, this is phenomenal. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're going to, and then the Bob would come up to the the, uh, the uh, microphone like he always is. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll see you in a few minutes. And his few minutes is always 45 minutes to an hour, even back then. But back then, they played three sets at times, or they played very, very long sets. They were a lot younger than they are now. So that's what I really remember about that show. And I left feeling like, wow, what a band. I've never, you know, never seen anything like that. And then from there, you know, I just started to see them on Long Island at the Nassau Coliseum. If they played six nights, I went every night. If they played four nights or five nights or six nights at the Garden, I went every night. If they played in Connecticut at the Hartford Center, I would drive up to Hartford I would go every night. I'd stay in a hotel for five nights. I mean, tickets were 10 or $12 back then. You know, and my, my family had money, so it wasn't that difficult for me. Um, but like I said, I wasn't the type to travel to the West Coast. They, I felt they always played more loose on the West Coast because they were closer to home. But that being said, I've seen so many great concerts and by far the best one. The best one was Watkins Glen because it was the three great American bands of the 70s in one place at one time. There's so much. I want to I want to get to that one next. <laughs> but uh, okay. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So let me ask you. So what did your parents think about it? Like they were cool. I mean, it was local, but you were a teenager. My, my like parents, my parents were so involved in their own lives. Uh, my mother was so involved in her tennis lessons and my father was so involved with his girlfriends and his uh, his money and his uh his white shoes, you know, he's a real Italian, his alligator shoes. I don't even know if they knew I was gone for two days. I really don't. Wow. I remember coming home without a shirt, with my shoes filled with mud, my jeans filled with mud. You know, my hair was long. It was a little stringy by that time. I was in the rain listening to the Allman Brothers for nine hours. Um, and my mother goes, where were you? And I said, I was at the concert for Watkins Glen. And she didn't even know what that was. They didn't even know I was gone, you know, because I had two younger sisters that they were focused on. I was, you know, the oldest son, and I had a free ride. Right. And uh, Edgar Winter had a great song called Free Ride, so I was had a free ride. <laughs> well, you know what's so funny is, I've like, so today, I'll mention to the listeners, today we are in the, the days between. We are, we're taping this on the 3rd, so we're right, you know. Right into the world of, you know, remembering Jerry between his birthday and, and the day he passed. And so, you know, it, with, you know, little social media messages and what have you not, I've been kind of searching to see, like, what am I going to put out there? What am I feeling? And it, and it should be, you know, something for Jerry every day. And so I was looking for interviews. And I have to share, there was the funniest interview. I, I didn't put it up, but I think I will. Um, it was in the 80s. And basically, Jerry's, so it's in the 80s. Jerry's in his 40s. And he says, he says something about the shows that he wants it to be a place where there's no parents. And, you know, I mean, of course, at this point, he's a father, right? And there's plenty of families that are at the concert. But it just, I thought it was just so funny. I mean, it tie, reminded me of just what you were saying, because the idea of the authority of the parents, of the people saying you can or cannot do that, was it was a parent-free zone in his, in his interview, which, again, is so funny because he was a parent, but he just meant a specific type of parent, right? Like, it was more the, the judgmental, the watching over, the you can't do that, I, I feel like was his uh, intentions it was, on it. 
Yeah. Well, today it's it's more like that. Um, I, you know, growing up in the 70s, being going to most of these concerts in the 70s and the early and mid 80s, um, in the 70s especially, a lot of the violence wasn't around, or if it was, it wasn't spoken. I mean, you could hitchhike back then. Yeah. You know, um, there's no hitchhiking anymore. I, I was with 600,000 or 660,000 people that were into the same thing I was. Peace, love, happiness, and great music. And that's what we all went for. And we had the time of our life. All of us. There was no violence. There was, it, was just, it was just great. It was great. I, I, it's undescribable. Feeling of seeing three great, I mean, that opened up. The weather was perfect. They opened up with Bertha. That I remember. Um, a lot of things came my way and a lot of things came in me. It was a great experience. I remember a lot of the songs they played. They played a lot of my favorites, Mexicali Blues, El Paso, China, Ryder. They did it all. You know, Ramblin' Rose. Uh, they, they, they just did it all. They played 24 songs, I believe. And, and they took a break. And um, they, they, were, they took up about eight or nine hours of that concert. They really did. And each band did. And then there was like an hour and a half break. And then you would like look for food and you'd find some and it was all hot dogs and everything. And then the band came on and, you know, there I was fighting to get closer to the stage. And I did because I was only five, six. And um, the band came on and they they played 20 songs. And, you know, Levon Helm and his band, they were, they were great, too. I mean, you know, I was a deadhead. They weren't the Grateful Dead, but it was part of this celebration of change of freedom it was it was like woodstock originated that feeling but this sort of put a stamp on it we have we have arrived we are the freedom generation and we're not going to take it anymore i don't know if you understand where i'm coming from i i completely do no i mean everything i'm it's uh my heart is smiling listening to everything you're saying uh, because it does it resonates so much and uh and it's not, it, it resonates so much to my core, but not necessarily to the society we live in. And it's, um, it's neat to have this group of people that can understand something, then be part of something, even if it was 20 years before they were born, you know, because I think a lot of people who are listening, who weren't there can still just get the goosebumps and feel it because it's, it's well, remained. That's John Mayer. That's all John Mayer and Bob Weir and the two original drummers and Jeff Cementi. I mean, Jeff Cementi has been playing with Bob Weir since 1997. I mean, he, he, there's no other piano or organ player that can play as tight as he can. He knows this music. You know, he, he just does. And then the two drummers are the original drummers. And you got Bobby and you got John Mayer, who is phenomenal. I mean, a phenomenal musician, intelligent, for him to conform to what he was and be able to play Grateful Dead music in the manner in which he does is incredible to me. This guy is the best guitarist out there. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I'm partial to him, you know, because of the band he's playing with. But I don't know if there's anyone out there that could be a blues jazz specialist that could play with Clapton as well as Clapton. And all of a sudden, get a couple of guitars and have a soft touch like Jerry Garcia. Not sound like Jerry Garcia, but playing a band, he can play Grateful Dead music. Not that many people can do that with that band. No, I agree. 
I'm addicted. I mean, I was well, anyone who's been following my travels. I mean, this podcast is now down to once a month because it's been so busy chasing the music because it's just it has that electrifying, addicting the community, the vibes, the music being there. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. you know, you can't compare any one thing to anything else because every day is different. Every experience is different. Life every is different. concert is different. Every concert is different. But the idea of like just chasing that music, chasing that energy, chasing that high of it all together and happening is so alive and well inside of me right now. So right. a thousand percent. You know, and I want to take the chance to say something. I've been seeing this group for 47 or 48 years. And I know a lot of people that have done the same thing. And they're on this thing. The Grateful Dead ended when Jerry died. Guys, you're wrong. Give this kid a chance. Go listen to him. Go see a live show and listen to this kid play. He is carrying on the legend. He really is. You got to give him a chance. It, it hasn't ended. It ended for a while, but it's been reborn. The only thing missing is Phil Lesh playing the seven-string bass. There is no bass player like I miss Phil Lesh. That I have to admit. But, you know, O'Teal does a great job. He's got a nice voice. He played with the Allman Brothers. So he's of that, you know, um, country southern Cumberland spirit himself. But I do miss Phil Lesh. But you, you got to give this band, you, you know, if you're thinking that, oh, it could never be the same without Jerry Garcia, you're right. But it's a continuation. It's just a continuation of good state of mind, a well state of being. I, you know, I, I, I don't really know how to put it into words. You have to be there and feel it and see the color. Well, I think you just put it into words perfectly. Absolutely. I think you just, I mean, it, it made sense to me. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I hear what you're saying, brother. Well, you know, I have to say, so, so these podcasts, I mean, completely ad hoc, all for fun. Everyone's different. Every situation's different. But I got to tell you, my friend, we like to play, we're play, play music and I've now jumped through two songs. So we're up to data company, which we're going to do. So this podcast is we're going to circle around and around because I want to play some music and then. And I want to talk about, you know, more experiences and more songs and, and why they were picked. So what do you think? Should we throw it back to the Casey Jones with Pigpen, the first show? Or should we go to Watkins Glen or throw in a dead and company now? Like, what, what are you feeling? Because it's well, all ad hoc. It's all happening. Well, how about Cumberland Blues, Europe 72? Do you have that available? I have everything available. No matter what I mean, you want to hear, Cumberland we will Blues, play. I mean, and I saw, I saw dead and company November 17th, this past fall opening night. And they did Cumberland Blues. And they, that was the closing of their first set. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you, Bob Weir and John Mayer playing that song. And they played it for like nine minutes. And they effing killed it. They killed it. It was so close to the Europe 72 version. Like, it was so amazing. And my son looked at me, he goes, I've never seen a, he's 27. How do they do it? I said, Rob. They do it because they love what they do, and they've been doing it for so long. You know what? Let's let's go on the spirit of that one. Let's uh, let's play the Cumberland Blues from Madison Square Garden with uh, okay. the Dead and Company. seventeenth. Yeah, let's do that one. November Last song 17th. of the first set. Um, it starts out slow. Bobby can't get it together, and when he finally does, he goes up to the microphone and he goes, "Just like a Swiss watch." I mean. <laughs> It's so perfect. <laughs> and then they get into it. That's a great version. And you listen to John Mayer play this song. And anyone who thinks that the Grateful Dead are finished after hearing this song, 
you need you need psychotherapy, in my opinion. <laughs> okay, well, we're gonna roll into that, and then we are gonna throw it back and go forward. And this this uh, this podcast time machine has no bounds. So let's go back just recently to last November and hear Dead and Company playing Cumberland Blues. Right. And then we'll come back with some more stories and songs. Okay, you got it.
Well, back from the recent past in Madison Square Garden, listening to Dead & Company play Cumberland Blues, and we kind of scratched on Watkins Glen. I, I want to hear more. Let's, let's hear just more about the overall experience, and then I want to play some music from that, too. Okay, so, you know, after the Dead, I said the band came out, and they played for seven or eight hours as well, and um, then there was a long pause, and the Allman Brothers came out, and of course, Dwayne was passed at this time, and Dickie Betts was out there, and Greg and the band, and they played 20 songs, and they played in the pouring rain, and I didn't move, and I took my shirt off, and that's how I came home with no shirt. I lost my shirt. I lost my cap. I lost my mind. I lost my ride. I lost my money, but it didn't matter. I was having the time of my life. So they play in the pouring rain through the night, and it's almost dawn when they're finished, and a half hour goes by, and you see the roadies are setting up the stage with more equipment. And all of a sudden, there's an encore. The encore is not by the Omen Brothers. It's by the Grateful Dead, the band, and the Omen Brothers, three complete bands with all their musicians on the stage, did three songs. I don't remember which three. I know one of them was Johnny B. Good, and it was the most incredible version of Johnny B. Good you could ever hear, with Jerry, Bobby, um, Dickie Betts, Greg Allman. I mean, it was unbelievable, and it was like it was like an it was like an hour and ten minute three song encore, and that's how the concert ended, and it was the most epic event I've ever seen, and that's. That's that's it. I mean, you know, my favorite part of it, of course, was, you know, seeing the dead. But those two other bands were incredible as well. The whole experience was great. It was great. Well, you know what I'm going to do? We're talking and I have Bertha down, but I'm going to listeners, whatever song I'm going to play from this. I got to tell you, I have it's not locked down, man. It's not locked down. So I think we should surprise people for what the next song's coming out because we originally talked about putting Bertha out because it's just so electrifying and it's the first song that the dead played and it got everyone up and going but if I can track down the Johnny Be Good with all of the bands together that would be really fun to share what do you think I sure would I bet it's out there I I feel pretty pretty good that uh, again I don't want to I don't want to deviate from our uh, podcast and start doing a big old Google search That's or anything okay. but but I, I think it's out there so I think I think we should play that and do like the ultimate you know encore finale from that experience yeah yeah I got news for you it was a big stage <laughs> I can only imagine I can only imagine there were a lot of speakers I mean could you imagine how those band members felt looking out at 600 and 60,000 people. No, I can't. And their peers, you know, I mean, that was what's what's so amazing. I feel about it. Like, I think that's, what's so special about the dead. And it's, it's funny, kind of a, like a sidebar story. My, I've mentioned this on the podcast umpteen times and my husband loves great music, but he's not a deadhead, but he loves great music. And we've had sort of a debate back and forth about, you know, all time bands. Right. And I have a theory. I'll share the theory. I don't think I've shared on the podcast. I'm curious to see what you think about this. So his ride or die is the Beatles. He is just, you know, the Beatles are number one. And I fucking love the Beatles. I really do. I mean, I love all of the bands that created this original music that the everyone else was continuously inspired by. We were just listening to Not Fade Away, and we listened to the Buddy Holly version. And it's phenomenal, right? I mean, like, whoever <laughs> created the sound is, you know, gets mad props, you know, they created something. And then I feel like the other bands took it and tweaked it and, you know, made it into something else. But my theory on the Beatles versus the dead, here it goes. Uh, tell me what you think. I'm super curious about what you think about my, uh, my uh, okay. thesis on it. 
because we had to come up with something that worked for everyone. So I think that the Beatles, you know, after they left Liverpool and when they came to the U.S., they were playing to these massive stadiums, like the Shea Stadiums, with all of these people, but they weren't their people. They were a, like a boy band, right? They were, you know, hundreds of thousands of screaming female fans, and I think it kind of freaked them out. And then they went back into their studio and experimented with, you know, psychedelics and in, mm-hmm. turned inward. And then from a recording standpoint, I think they recorded the most amazing music that was recorded for just what they created, what they found, what they did. But I think that they weren't really for their live, they weren't tuned into their live performances because of who was coming. It just was sort of an opposite. Whereas I feel like the dead started, you know, they were never a big recording band. And your story of Watkins Glen just reminded me of, I feel like they got in front of these people and they still do. I mean, the dead and company, I saw two stadium shows. It's their people. It's It started with the acid test with, you know, 30 people partying in San Francisco in 1965, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. So I feel like it's this interesting juxtaposition between a recording band and a live band and how different they end up being to musical history. What do you think? I, I, I happen to agree with you very, very much on that, um, except I'll add one thing. Um, the Beatles had a guitar player that was very underrated. Um, he got notoriety um, probably more after he died, and it was um, George Harrison. Oh, yeah. Very, yeah. very, very underrated guitarist. And what songwriter, too. I mean, my God, his oh. first album that came out, the, uh, yeah. the his first album was like everything that they wouldn't let him put out as a Beatle. Exactly. Paul and John were a little controlling. You know, and then Yoko showed up and ruined everything. But um, as far as they uh, were... You know, a studio band, as the far best. as vocals and songwriting, unsurpassed. Absolutely. But for live, the dead. And that's kind of how we've made peace at our house. Because I was like, okay, check it out. Studio building, <laughs> groundbreaking, lyrical, like everything they did to inspire everyone else. Their music. I mean, the White Album, mixing, recording, sounds, right. orchestra. Like you couldn't do that live. I mean, the shit they did on their recordings really wouldn't translate to a live stage. No. Whereas the dead... You know, I mean, they put out some recorded albums, but their best albums were their live albums. I mean, they were not a recording band. And and I think it's about coming up with your people versus play. It's about being sort of a part of a community versus being more insular. And I think the Beatles were much more insular. And then they created this and put it out for the world. Right. I agree with you. The Rolling Stones um, were, were, were in there, too. But they they were they were more revolutionary. But I remember yeah, as well, you know. I think of them as more of like a performing band. Like I think they had the front man, the rock star, the show. Yeah, <laughs> he was like, you know, I mean, he was a precursor to like a Freddie Mercury, you know, like somebody who was out there as a performer, you know, like that's what I get from the Stones was just like a well, that amazing thing. Certainly neither one of those bands can come out and get the crowd curious for 10 or 12 minutes while you know, you got a bunch of guys like John Mayer and these guys and Bobby and everybody playing. And all of a sudden, feels like a stranger opens and he goes, let's get on with the show. And the crowd, you know, the crowd just like, you know, let's get on with the show. It's just, you have to be there. I, I don't know. You understand what I'm saying. Oh, I understand. Well, I've been trying to explain this to my poor husband for two years. And it's just, I mean, again, he gets that I get it, but he doesn't get yeah. it himself. I mean, but it's okay. You know, I... You know? And, you know, when, when Weir says, you know, I'm looking across and I'm thinking, just what you got. You know, it's just like the way he says it, you know, it, 
it's I, I don't know. It's just so cool. It's just cool. It is cool. It's fucking magic, it's, man. It's fucking magic. It's the coolest magic ever. Well, let's cool go play. With a K. Cool, cool with, with a K. K. Well, let's go play another tune, and then we're gonna come back. So, all right, guys, this is a total mystery. It'll be on right. the. Uh, I know blog. the song. I know the song you're gonna play. Go ahead, play it. It's one of I'm my gonna favorite do, songs. Go I'm gonna try and do the Johnny Be Good. Let's do the Johnny Be Good from Watkins Glen. Let's let's uh, let's track that down and get like the mass major like fucking awesome encore from that show, and then we'll we'll right. come back did, with did a few no, I've been talking instead of Googling, but I'm going to find it. I, I feel right. confident. All right. <laughs> if okay. it's on the internet, it's going to be on the podcast. So okay. everybody, that's going to be it. And if for some reason I can't find it, then we're going to play Bertha. <laughs> well, you can play you can play the other song as well. Um, what was it? Brown Eyed Woman. They played. Oh, well, that's a special one. Well, that's another me. special one. They played He's Gone. One. I mean, yeah. Steal Your Face Right Off Your Head. That's another song. When the crowd hears that, they go crazy. I mean, you know, I have a steal your face sticker on my car. All my cars have steal your face stickers on it. I mean, you know. Amen, brother. Well, let's throw it back to Watkins Glen, and it's going to be the uh, the surprise selection from the Watkins Glen Music Festival. And then we're going to come back because we're still only in like the early 70s. So I want to hear a few more s songs and stories. And okay. uh, everybody enjoy.
Well, back from Watkins Glen, and I mean, we're only in the mid seventies, and so there's there's a, a long, strange trip ahead. So tell me, uh, post Watkins Glen. Okay, so post Watkins Glen, I would start to go see them at the Nassau Coliseum. I would go to; they would play seven or eight nights. I would go every night, and while they were in New York, they would play at the Garden seven or eight nights, and I would go seven or eight nights. That's how I got to see so many concerts. Now, the interesting thing about the Nassau Coliseum was those were general admission concerts. So I was always very close to the stage. And those concerts, right after Watkins Glen, this was in March of 73, March of 73 or March of 74, I think March of 73, the New Riders of the Purple Sage opened for them with Buddy Cage on steel pedal guitar. Now, Jerry used to play steel pedal guitar when he on their first album. But, you know, you can only do so much. And they would play for an hour and a half, and they were a great band. They were great, especially when you're 10 feet away from them. And then they would play, and they would stop, and then they change, and then the dead would come out. And they would open up with uh, Dancing in the Streets or um, Jack Straw. Jack Straw was always one of my favorite opening up songs for some reason. Because it starts really mellow, and it really um, starts to really, like, get going towards the end. Like, like a buildup. It's like a um, it's like a Grateful Dead Stairway to Heaven buildup song. You know oh, yeah. what I'm saying? I just used to just go every night, and every night was different. And um, I remember always being, not always, but a lot of times being so close to Jerry, and he would sing Sugary or Deal or um, New Speedway Boogie, and he would directly. I was so close, he would directly look at me, and I would feel like. This guy is actually singing to me. This guy—it's like he's on my deck, you know. It's just like, you know, when I worshipped him, you know, in a sense. I was just a kid, you know, 19 years old or so, 18, 19 years old, and um, they were great times. Just great times, great people, and great—you know what I mean. It was the 70s. Everything, everything went on in the 70s. That was my favorite time when the God Chows, you know, I'm, I'm, it was sad when Pigpen left and passed, but they hired uh, Keith Godchow and then eventually Donna came on. And um, I felt that uh, my favorite years were the God Chow years because I felt that um, Keith was great. Uh, I liked Donna's, you know, coming in with her screaming or whatever and her singing every once in a while. And I felt that Jerry was at his healthiest at that point in time. So uh, those were my favorite years. And it was when I was young, when I had the most energy and when I could see them the most. Going into the 80s, I had that same energy. And then once Jerry went into that coma and came out and started with In the Dark and We Will Survive, the energy started to get even stronger. But his health was starting to diminish. But they were a tighter band. It's It's like, that's the Grateful Dead. You can't really pinpoint the height of their career. I mean, the height of their popularity was probably the early 90s. And that's probably when they were the tightest. But my favorite time was, you know, like 72 to 79 when Keith was their their organ player. And then Vince came and, you know, sadly he, he passed. He couldn't take Jerry's death. And then um, Brett came and Brett was amazing. He had the best vocals and energy and Jerry liked to be right next to him. You know, you know, it, 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 
it's just a, a continuation, and they, 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 they became better musicians as they got older. But for me, um, my favorite time was the Godshow years. I, I really have to be honest. But um, they were all good years. They were all good years. Well, I think that those years in the 70s, I mean, I, I, I have learned so much, you know, from – from this deep dive into the community so much more than I ever would have just on my own fruition. And I mean, really those, that 77, I mean, Cornell, those years, I mean, you're not oh, alone yeah. with that, you know, I mean, those are the, they're epic, you know, that's an epic time where it was an epic time and as a band and in, in society and what they were creating. And um, I mean, so special. And I mean, I think of them as, I mean, I think of, you know, the dead and, you know, we, they, Again, to your point earlier, it's not the Grateful Dead anymore. So at this point, I just call it the dead because the dead to me sort of capture it all. And I think of it as just this giant book, family. like this family, but it's like a giant book of chapters, right? And there's the chapters in the 60s and the chapters with the pig pen and the chapters with the Keith and Donna and the chapters with Brent and the chapters in the 90s when Jerry died. And I think it's almost the like chapters, a, now there's chapters with Dead and Company. The, now there's the rat dog and the chapters, chap the other ones and the chapters are further. Yeah. It all falls together. Phil and Friends and, and yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so you know, many different Jackie chapters. Jackie Green and Phil Lesh and Friends. I mean, they play with all great musicians that all respect and complement each other. I mean, these guys don't compete against each other. They help each other. This the opposite of society. It is. It's this gigantic book that's ever being evolved. And, and I think that the backbone, the spine of the book is, is the songbook. And the songbook itself isn't even just limited to the Grateful Dead. I mean, per earlier, it includes the Beatles and includes Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry and on and on and on. I mean, that the songbook is just whatever they're feeling at that time, you know, and that songbook extends beyond the chapters. I mean, it's just this infinitive circle of, of music and players and, and, it's uh, it's 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 unlike anything else. I again, I think we we speak the same language, my did friend. You, did you ever hear them play "Come Together" live? Not live. No, I would. I've heard it recorded, but not well, live. I've, I've heard it live, and let me tell you, man, it's pretty pretty intense. I mean, they don't do it as well as the Beatles. They do it Grateful Dead style. It's pretty intense. Well, I, I again, I, I, I love it all. <laughs> well, speaking of music, let's go back. Let's do another tune for everyone. So, um, tell me a little bit about Radio City. I have a, I have the Radio City run um, as something to talk about and a, and a pick from that. So, well, tell me a little City, bit about that. Radio City, um, they did two sets. The first set was an acoustic set, um, and uh, it's it was a great venue. Um, they were peaking. You know, that was around the time they were peaking. Um, the Godchows were gone, um, but they still were peaking. They were, be were becoming better musicians, were getting tighter, were getting um, more into, um, I think, perfecting their trade rather than partying. And I think that their audience was starting to really, really, really take off to even more than what it was. And it was always very large, especially, you know, from the 73 on. So the first set, the end of the first set, it was all acoustic. And, of course, we all know what the last song of an acoustic set's going to be. It's going to be Ripple. So he goes into Ripple, and the place just, like, it's heavenly. And when he says, let there be songs to fill the air, the place erupts. There's something about Jerry Garcia saying that. You know what I mean? 
Oh, yeah. Let there be songs to fill the air. I mean, uh, who but Robert Hunter could come up with a line like that? <laughs> it's it's absolute magic. It's absolute magic. And it changes. And every time I, I, I – Ripple is a song when it's on a playlist for me that I just can't fast forward past. Like, there's some songs, sometimes I'm in the mood for more than others. And sometimes I'll kind of search for a song, like, oh, I feel like listening to this. Or, you know, I'll have a playlist. But there's something that's really reverent about – ripple where I just can't hit skip right like it's just like I feel like whenever it comes on when I'm like listening to digital music it's like I have to hear it every single time it's just one of those songs it's sacrilegious to skip over like I can skip over an El Paso or I can skip over a one more Saturday night or you know in other days I want to hear that some days I don't it depends on the mood but there's something about ripple that is just like I don't know like as soon as it comes up you got to hear it every fucking time Yeah, I feel the same way about Broke Down Palace, you know? Yeah, that one too. Listen to the river, sing sing sweet songs to rock my soul. I mean, that's powerful stuff. Oh, my God, every time. Well, let's go play Ripple, and then we're going to come back and talk a little more and have a, a one more song pick. So everybody go enjoy Let There Be Songs to Fill the Air. <laughs>
are now back from Radio City in 1980. And I mean, again, this could be a, a freaking four hour conversation with all of the different, oh my God, all the different chapters and the different music, the different offshoots and the Jerry Garcia band and, and the Rat Dog. And when we were talking before, you were telling me about, you know, you went and followed Rat Dog around. Tell me a little bit about the last Rat Dog show, because that was a phenomenal story that I, I, I said, no, 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 wait, you got to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, okay, that, yeah, definitely. Um, it was in March of 2014. He played at uh, the Westbury Music Fair. It's not called that anymore, but it's in Westbury, New York. It's a very, very small venue. It's actually, you're sitting in a circle. The stage is in the middle, but it's very small. And every seat is a good seat, and the acoustics are excellent. So he's there, Bob Weir and Rat Dog. And I think Bobby knew that, you know, when he was playing with Further at the same time and he was developing that band and making that band stronger and putting his energy into that. And I really think that um, he he knew that this was the last time and I believe it was the last time that Rat Dog was going to play as Rat Dog. And I think he he definitely made the decision that, you know what, we're not going to do what we normally do tonight. We are going to celebrate Grateful Dead music. And every song they played, and they played it unbelievably, perfectly, was a Grateful Dead song. And 80% of them were Jerry Garcia songs. And you had Rob Wasserman, may he rest in peace, died recently, playing the real bass. Jay Lane, who played in Rat Dog for many years. Jeff Cimenti, been playing with Bob Weir since 97, who is now in... Dead and Company, great, great, great pianist and organ player and great band conductor, sort of. They played everything and their encore was Ripple and they they killed it. Every song was, they never did that before. It was a Grateful Dead concert by Rat Dog. And that was his way of saying goodbye from Rat Dog. It was a gift to the audience. It really was. I think the whole audience was in shock. In pleasant shock. And I'll never forget that. And he was great. He was really, really, really into it. He was all over that stage rocking. I think it's just with Bobby. He just loves to. I mean, I think with all of them, I think that that, I think beyond, I mean, there's so many things that are the same and there's so many things that are different with all, you know, musicians and bands and people. But I mean, really, I'd say it's just especially Bobby, Phil, it was Jerry and, and Jeff Gimetti, I'll throw this in too. And O'Teal, he's playing now. Like these guys just fucking love to play, right? I mean, they, they can't stop playing. I mean, I had the most, like there was every, it was, I get so angry when people talk about it being like about money. And it's like, you know, these guys have plenty of money. It's not about money. You don't play almost every night. You don't play in your own places. You don't keep coming up with these tours and these shows and, Unless you just absolutely love doing it, you know, and I feel like watching, you know, into his 70s, Bobby playing and all these other off spins and again, from Rat Dog to you mentioned Jeff. I mean, I've seen Jeff play with J-Rat. I've seen Jeff play with with Steve Kamak. I mean, they don't stop playing, you know, like when they're not on tour, they just keep playing with other people because they fucking love to play. And it's just I saw Bobby when I was at the Sweetwater last week in California, and it was definitely the closest I've ever been. Uh, well, that's like seeing someone at the Lone Star Cafe in Manhattan in the old days. I mean, come on. You're, you're, you're in his, you know, you're, you're in his, you're in his house. You're 
in his home, and um, George Porter Jr. was playing, and I have some friends, little little hey to my Northern California video. friends. I, oh, I mean, it was so great, and these guys, some friends of mine out there were like, I'll oh, be sure to get tickets. I, I think Bobby's going to show up that night, and sure enough, on the second set, and I mean, my God, Anthony, he was just so relaxed and so happy. It, he made me, it made me laugh. I was trying to think about, like, I mean, it's kind of like a weird, stony thought, but like, how would you describe him? And he, after that long tour, that he looked so rested and so happy. He reminded me of like a dog that just got groomed, you know, like his right, hair right. was all white and his toes, you know, his, his nails were all polished. I mean, not, you know what I'm saying? Theoretically, you know, he just, he looks so clean and happy and relaxed and at home and just where he wants to be. And it's, just, it's, I, I don't know. I can't think of any oh, other yeah. musicians out there that you can say that for, well, you know, yeah. he said it himself, he goes, you know, you know, you know, you can't expect me to pick up my golf bags. This is, I'm not in my golden years. And you know what? I might still be playing in my golden years. <laughs> These are his golden years now. Again, you just, you cannot keep them away. I was telling my friend Sarah, who was uh, last week's podcast about going to Terrapin. And I'm like, you know, you can't even really plan it because it's so ad hoc. But Phil having his free shows, you know, on Sundays. And I mean, there was a, a dog rescue. I mean, he went there and it was yeah, puppies and Phil music Lesh. and Phil. It's it's amazing, though. Like, Phil Lesh, yeah. Well, Phil Lesh has a special appreciation for life as a result of his liver transplant and you know he's a great human being, and um, I miss him playing with them. He he was a, he's a great he's a seven string bass guitar player. I saw him and Bob Weir at Radio City Music recently. Oh yeah yeah I know those were amazing. And it was recent and it was just those two, and they had very little time to practice because it was like right in the middle of the tour. And he was playing a seven string bass guitar, and he was basically playing lead guitar bass. He was doing Jerry Garcia notes with a bass guitar it was incredible it is phenomenal absolutely so we're going to play one more song and then we're going to do a sign off but so again there were so many songs it's it's virtually impossible to pair it to four or five so i sort of picked through your memories and extrapolated them for I just you to say one more thing to what you said you know um that they you know this is what they do they play music i heard john mayer was interviewed and um, he, he made a comment. He said, you know, when my tours end and I'm in my house and my guitar's up against the wall, that part of my life is empty. I have to find a way to fill that part of my life. You know, and it's kind of sad, you know, like if he's not touring, it's like, what do I do? You know, I have all the money in the world. I have all this. I could get any girl I want, but that's not what I want. I want to play, you know, but you can't always keep playing. You know, it's like. There's a part of my life that I have to fill. You know, he's only a 40-year-old guy. So, you know, I thought that was interesting that he said that. No. Oh, I think he's going to be really interesting to watch in that evolution, too, because, I, I mean, my feelings theory, I don't know shit. This is just my opinion, right? Like, I, my thoughts on John Mayer's life and what he's doing, I think he's in a crossover of doing what he loves to do and doing what he has been doing, is responsible for doing, is being in contracts to doing, which is a lot of his, the other music tours. And I don't think that he necessarily probably has the flexibility 
to pop up and do this and do that at this stage of his career, but yeah. I think it's coming. I think that once he, I think as, as things evolve with the Dead and Company and he kind of makes a full evolution to doing what he loves to do, I think John will be following those footsteps, just playing at local clubs in L.A. or places, and I think he has that same just, I want to get out and play, and I think there's probably some... I think there's probably some responsibilities or some contracts or some things that are sort of stopping him from doing that because of his previous pop star. It's going to come. I think it's a journey, and I think he just needs to complete that part of his life so he can be like a Phil or like a Bob and do whatever the fuck he wants whenever he wants. I, I think that that's going to come. And he will. So tell me about the – You want? we talked about Jack Straw. You know, I don't have a favorite, but it's one of my favorite opening songs – I don't know, it gets me going. That and Feels Like a Stranger. Those two songs get me going. But um, the last time I saw Jerry was at the garden. I took my wife. And, you know, she's like not really a deadhead, but she'll go because she likes looking at the people. And at that time, she was like a big pothead. And she gets to smoke some pot. Uh, you know, I, I gave that up a long time ago. I got tickets to a friend, and they were third row center. And when you see the dead third row center, which is how I like to see them, and I've always seen them, you know, eighth row center, 11, you know, whenever, she was in the middle of the biggest pot party she could be in. And she's got this 20-year-old kid saying to her, hey, man, I'm on two hits of acid, and I have another hit in my sock. Would you like one? This is my 58-year-old wife. <laughs> and she's like, Did she no, go thank for it? no, thank oh, okay. you. I'll smoke your pot, but I don't want your acid. <laughs> So anyway, we get there, and um, they open up with Jack Straw, and they they do it perfect. Perfect. And Jerry's in good spirits, and he looks healthy. He really looked healthy that night. He was dressed nice. He was wearing a nice shirt. Um, he wasn't, you know, like sloppy. His hair was nice. He was all shaved. It was the last time I saw him. It was the Halloween tour in October of 1994, and I always thought I'd get to see him again, and I didn't, and um, I miss him. I miss him dearly, and when I found out he passed, um, it was a very, very, very sad day, sad day. Absolutely. Well, again, these are these are the days between. This, this whole week is, um, I, I, you know, and I, I'm just really, like everyone, learning about the culture and the people, you know, day by day, week by week, year by year, and two years ago, I didn't, I really just learned that it's this period of observation. It reminds me of the Jewish high holidays, right? Being a nice Jewish girl, like the days between, it reminds yeah. me almost of like the, the New Year Yom Kippur kind of time. And, yeah, um, Russia Homa. <laughs> yeah, you know, so well, let's go back. Let's give this one, let's let's uh, let's toast to Jerry on uh, on the Jack Straw from October 14th, 1994. Could listen to a, a sweet memory of him sounding strong and beautiful. I think that that's perfect. I, I mean, think they, uh, they did so many great songs that night. They did they did your song, Strangers Topic. They did um, Scala Begonias. It was incredible that the way they did it, right into um, Fire on the Mountain. Perfect. They were perfect. I mean, by the time they got to that stage of their career, they were they were they were really 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 tight, great musicians. And when he died, it was so sad because they had become great musicians. You know what I'm saying? Oh, they yeah. They weren't just a concert band anymore. They were a concert band, but they were also great musicians individually that were so in tune with each other that they just take off. And that was that. And that's what John's developing now. They're letting him loose, and he's taking off. And he's 
Okay, he can play, man. I'm very impressed with him. I really am. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's go. Well, I really, let's, let's I've been listening back. to these guys for 48 years. I am really impressed with him. He is right up there with all of them. Well, let's go back on today, um, the days between here on the 3rd of August, and hear Jerry singing Jack Straw in October 1994, and then we will come back and do a little goodbye. Okay, sounds good.
Well, back from Jack Straw, and I just want to, you know, wrap it up and say thank you, thank you, thank you. This was amazing. Thank you, thank you. Well, Stacy, thank you. Without you, this could have never happened. You know, you're amazing. Your posts are amazing on Instagram, and I think what you're doing is a great thing. I think it's um, serves the community well. I think it serves. Um, I, I think it serves any musician well, and I think it serves any deadhead, anybody who likes music well. You really, really, really a very intelligent young lady. You've been blessed, and God bless you. Well, I appreciate it, and honestly, being a, I'm so blessed to be able to meet so many amazing people and hear and share their stories and learn and grow, and it's also fun, you know? I mean, how many things can you decide you're going to do where you get to meet thousands of amazing people and listen to renditions of the best music ever? It really is. Right. Um, the pleasure is all mine, man. So much fun. Okay. Next time they're in New York, we'll... We'll get, we'll talk, and my wife and I and you and your husband will all meet, whatever, and we'll say hello in person. How's that sound? Uh, that sounds amazing. Your wife and I can smoke a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll watch. Makes me paranoid. <laughs> all right, man. Have a fabulous day. Thank you again. Thank you Bye. so much. You be well. Enjoy the rest of the summer. I will. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.